What I want to do this morning as we begin is I want to begin by explaining to you what we're up against this morning, what I'm up against this morning as the preacher here. The, the text that we're going to cover is Romans chapter 7. We're going to begin now. We've ended Romans 6 and come to the seventh chapter, and as we stand on the threshold of entering into that study this morning, I just want to give you some comments related to the chapter as a whole. First of all, almost every commentator, and I'm referring to those both those alive today and those renowned, notable commentators of history, when they come to Romans chapter 7, in their exposition of truth, here is the almost uniform, not verbiage, but idea is just consistent across the board. They say things like this. Romans chapter 7 is undoubtedly the most controversial chapter in the whole of Scripture. This chapter has been and continues to be the subject of widespread debate. Or statements like this, no other chapter in the Bible has been so often discussed, debated, disputed, and flat out argued as the seventh chapter that Paul wrote in the Church of Rome. Those are men of the caliber like Martin Lloyd-Jones and Donald Barnhouse and Boyce and Charles Hodge and Warren Worsby. And when those men make statements like that related to a section of Scripture, that can cause the preacher that's not stout of heart and broad of shoulders to get a little squirmy in his shoes. It can cause him to all of a sudden hear the still small voice of God saying, preach somewhere else. I'm not going to do that. We're going to charge ahead here. What I want to do is I want to start by just giving you the course that we're going to pursue this morning and why we're going to pursue it. What we're going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to give you this morning, instead of jumping into a phrase and spending the morning on it or a verse, I'm going to give you a, a warp speed look at Romans chapter 7 as a whole. I'm going to give you an overview picture of this chapter. This would be a good way to illustrate it. What we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to get the jet and we're going to fly 30,000 feet and do a flyby over Romans 7. And the purpose of doing that is so that we can, from an, a wide-angle view, we can see the topography of truth laid out in this chapter. Be able to see the, the landmarks of truth and get a picture, a, kind of a, a macro picture of the of the chapter as a whole. And the reason why that it is imperative that we do that, this is always true of Scripture, this idea of context. Context explains text. That's one of the most critical uh, pieces of proper biblical hermeneutics or biblical interpretation that you can apply. The context helps explain the text. And so, 
what we're going to do is we're going to get a preceding context to Romans chapter 7. And what we're going to conclude with is we're going to come to this great controversial piece of Romans chapter 7 right at the end of this morning. Not that we're going to dive into it, but Romans chapter 7, the first 12 verses have nothing to do with the controversy. It's what Paul says in the end of the chapter. That the great controversy around this this chapter revolves. Here, let me just, as we begin, let me just state it so uh, you'll be able to just kind of put it out of your mind and, and set it aside for a later date. The heartbeat of the controversy is this. In Romans chapter 7, Paul writes about a struggle that he has with sin. Just this ongoing, you know, I want to do... I don't do what I want to do, and what I don't want to do, I do, and there's this battle raging inside of me. That's the passage of Scripture that's so controversial. And here's the question that is debated. Did Paul write that about his life pre-salvation? Or did he write that real time as an ongoing experience that he had as he was writing this letter, the life of a believer? And I wanted to point that out to say this. If that is what is paramount in your mind related to Romans chapter 7, you'll miss the big point of the chapter. If that controversy and that that section of Scripture just kind of draws you right into it, you'll fly through the first 13 verses, 12 or 13 verses. And you'll miss the pretext. And the pretext sets you up to properly understand the end. You need to know about the beginning and about the middle so that you can understand the end. So what we're doing this morning is we're taking an overview picture. And we're going to come into Romans 7 from the chapters that precede it, and then we're going to follow sequentially down through Romans chapter 7 and take it a piece at a time. Romans 7 can be divided into three main categories, verses 1 to 6, verses 7 to 12, and verses 13 to the end of the chapter. So we're going to look at it in that sequence so that we're better prepared to properly interpret the truth of the text. What happens is this. I've been telling you this for several weeks as we went through Romans chapter 6, that Romans 6 and 7 are a parenthetical statement. They are a pause from the main theme that Paul was developing from chapter 1 to the end of chapter 5, then he runs down a detour for two chapters. And he does that not because he is checked out. He's very purposeful, very acute thinker. And he has a very good reason for doing so, and I'll explain that in a minute. And then as 
chapter 8 begins, he continues right on where he left off in the end of chapter 5. So right in between chapter 5 and chapter 8 is this two-chapter segue of truth. Here is the springboard from which that detour takes place. Romans chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. If you have your Bibles, look at those two verses. We're going to throw them up on the screen as well. Paul in Romans chapter 5, 20 and 21 made some just incredible statements here. Categorical statements. Statements that could be highly controversial statements. Listen to it. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. First thing I want to show you in those two verses is what Paul said about grace. He made a a radical statement here about grace. He said that where sin abounds or increases, grace does what? It abounds all the more. It, when we preach through that, it superabounds. As sin rises, grace rises to meet it and eclipses it, surpasses it. Paul is saying here that grace wins the day. When sin rises up, it meets his match in the grace of God that rises with it overshadows it, and eventually conquers and defeats it. That's a radical statement. And it's a statement that Paul understands as an acute, logical, profoundly logical speaker, teacher, that people could misuse, misunderstand, misinterpret, and therefore misapply. And the mis application or interpretation and application related to this statement about grace that many were actually making in Paul's day and were accusing Paul of was this idea of antinomianism. The idea that, hey, if grace rises up and wins the day and defeats sin, man, let's go out and sin all the more. It doesn't matter. We're secure. Grace is going to win. We have license. We can do what we want, and it doesn't matter. And so what Paul did is in Romans chapter 6, he wrote that chapter to refute that heinous conclusion. And he did it powerfully. He showed in Romans chapter 6 that in fact grace does not advocate sin or give permission for sin, or advance sin, what grace does is grace secures and empowers holiness and righteousness. Grace, properly understood, secures and enables and empowers a person to live in holiness and righteousness. That's the point he makes of Romans chapter 6. 
That's the first half of the parenthetical statement. What he said at the end of Romans chapter 5 caused him to pause and say, I know that's being misunderstood by some, and so I'm going to explain it. Grace does not advocate sin. If you believe that, you've completely missed the point, Paul says. What grace does is it advocates and advances holiness and righteousness. But he also made a statement in Romans 5, 20 and 21 about the law. That's the other controversy. He says that the law came in to increase the trespass or to increase the sin. Radical statement. A statement that could easily be misunderstood, perverted, and used in an improper way, implied entirely contrary to the intent of his heart. That the law actually increases the trespass. So what Paul does here in Romans chapter 7, matter of fact, that's not the only radical statement. He ends chapter 5 talking about the law in such a way that could be misunderstood. And then in the middle of chapter 6, verse 14, listen to what he says. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. You are not under law. Radical statement. So here he has made these two radical statements about the law. One is that the law came in to increase the trespass. And then secondly, talking to believers, you are not under law. He doesn't stop in the middle of chapter 6 to explain what he means by the statement, you are not under law. He waits until he gets to the end of chapter 6 and he opens chapter 7 with his second half of the parenthetical statement, chapter 7 is intended to explain what he meant by the phrases that the law came in to increase the trespass and that the believer is not under law but under grace. Chapter 7 is going to explain what he means by that. And I'll introduce what he means by showing a parallel with Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. In Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3, Paul builds a case that righteousness, that the only way that you and I can be righteous, that anyone can be righteous, is through faith in Jesus Christ. That no one is moral enough, no one is good enough, no one is obedient enough to appease God by their works. And so he comes to Romans chapter 3 verse 20 and he summarizes everything that he said up to that point in the letter with this statement. Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no human being will be what? justified in God's sight. By works of the law, no one is going to be justified. That means saved. That means forgiven of sins and placed into Christ and having a, a relationship now of peace with God where there had been enmity. 
No one by works of the law is going to be justified. Here's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 7. No one by works of the law will be sanctified before God. No one, notice the different word, no one, Romans 1, 2, and 3, will be justified, made right with God by works of the law. Romans chapter 7, no one is going to be sanctified. No one is going to grow in holiness. No one is going to grow more and more in Christ-like character by the works of the law. That's the point he is making in Romans chapter 7. So he is following sequentially with a line of thinking, advocating grace, and he says, no one is ever going to be righteous, justified by doing good works. Secondly, no one is ever going to be sanctified by doing good works. And then he is going to explain the message of that down through the rest of this chapter. You see, again, context not only of the Scriptures proceeding, but an understanding of the cultural context of the day will help give vivid color and a proper setup for interpretation. The church at Rome, here's the context of the church that Paul was writing to. The church at Rome was founded by Jews who had been converted to Christianity. The Jew. What is the life of the Jew like? What was the life of the Jew like in Paul's day? What was the paramount reality for the Jew of Paul's day, it was the law. Everything about their life was centered around God's law. God's law given to Moses and then to them. From infancy forward, the law of God was at the very center and heartbeat of their lives. They were talking about it and emphasizing it day in and day out, every day, multiple times a day, throughout their lifetime. And then those who had come to a realization through the work of the Spirit of who Jesus is and what Jesus had done, and in faith, trusted Him for their salvation. What would be their tendency as they sought to live out the Christian life? Their bent, their inbred tendency would be to seek to pursue holiness before God by obedience to His law. That would be a default built right into them because of the lifelong emphasis that they had had. But Paul seems to be saying here, in this radical statement, that the law increases sin. Not only that, but he says in 6.14, 
You're not under law anymore as a believer. It'd be really easy to hear that and hear this. Paul is completely discounting the law. Paul is completely almost insulting the law, degrading it, setting it aside and say it has absolutely no place anymore whatsoever. And so Paul is going to explain throughout this chapter what these statements mean and what the truth is related to the law and the believer in relationship to the law. But the point here is that you would have a natural tendency to have a bent toward legalism. Here's what I want to say to you and me. It's no different with us. It is no different with us. It is the natural movement of the human heart to resist total surrender and dependency and to try to do something in the accomplishment of personal effort. It is just our natural default to do that. We don't like the idea that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that we can do to appease God. We want to do something, whether we're Jew or 21st century Jew or 21st century believer Christian, we simply have a bent in our human heart that wants to move toward legalism in some capacity. And in fact, I believe that everybody in this room, every believer in this room, in maybe some of it's very a minimal degree, but everyone has an issue with that in this room. I know I do. Some more than others. And so what Paul is doing in Romans chapter 7 is he is setting forth the truth That you can not do anything to appease God. Let me give you just a kind of a working definition here for legalism. Legalism is the belief that I can become holy and pleasing to God through obedience to the law. Whether that's in the nth degree or in a minimal degree. Legalism is the belief that I can become holy and pleasing to God through my own personal effort in obedience to God's law. How many of you have faced that? Just a rhetorical question here. How many of you have faced that in one degree or the other? How many of you have struggled with that bent in your own heart? You see, the legalist has at least two struggles. Has at least two struggles. Here they are. Number one, the legalist does not understand what the purpose of the law is 
And number two, the legalist does not understand the depths of their own sin issue. They don't understand the purpose of the law, and they don't understand the see the true picture and understand the true depth of their own sin. So in Romans chapter 7, here's what Paul, here's the big truth of what Paul is teaching. No one can be sanctified by their own personal observance of the law of God. In fact, what he's going to say in this chapter is that what the law does is that the law provides the occasion for sin actually to increase in our life instead of decrease. He's going to teach that explicitly in this chapter. But the big idea, get the big idea of Romans chapter 7 in your head. It is this. You cannot be sanctified before God by your obedience to the law. Just like you cannot be justified before God through your obedience to the law. Now don't, just like Paul's statements could be misunderstood. That statement could be misunderstood. I am not advocating disobedience in any way, shape, or form. We'll get to that as we work this chapter out. But keep that in mind. Try to, I'm encouraging you to write that down. I'm encouraging you to spend some of your own time in Romans chapter 7. And as we walk through this in the weeks to come, to keep that at the top of every one of your note pages because it's going to help provide the context to understand the text. So what I want to do now is, with that big idea in view, I want to show you the three divisions that Romans chapter 7 is laid out in. Here's the first one. It covers from verse 1 to verse 6. And the idea is this. The concept is this. Paul is talking about what the believer's relationship is to the law in verses 1 to 6. And so here's what he does. He opens in verse 1 and he makes this incredible categorical statement. What he says in verse 1 is that he defines what the parameters are of the law's jurisdiction over a life. He defines um, what authority and where the, where the limits of that authority end in relationship to the law over an individual. And here is the paradigm. The law has authority as long as the person lives. That's the categorical statement he makes. The law has jurisdiction. The law has authority over a life in its condemning power as long as there's life. So that the result or the opposite of that, the polar conclusion is what breaks 
the authority and jurisdiction of the law is what? It's death. The law has jurisdiction as long as the person lives, but the death ends that power, ends that jurisdiction. So then what he does is he takes that categorical statement and he illustrates it in verses 2 and 3. And he uses the illustration of a woman bound in marriage. And he says, a woman that is married to a man, she is bound by the law of that marriage as long as that husband is alive. She is bound. She cannot get out from under the jurisdiction of that law. But what happens if her husband dies? Is she still bound by that law? No. There's been a death. And the death ends the jurisdiction and the power of that law. Let's take it to today. You, not that you would ever do this, but you commit a crime. You commit armed robbery. And you're fleeing in a vehicle. And you've been caught red-handed the cops are on your tail, and in the high speed, you know, popular TV shows, right? In the high speed chase, you wrap your car around a concrete pillar on the highway, and you're instantly killed. Does the cop come up and cuff you and take you to jail? No. What does he do? He calls somebody to get a body bag down there and take you to the morgue. The law's jurisdiction has ended over you at the moment of death, right? That's all that Paul is using here, teaching here by this illustration. The death brings an end to the jurisdiction, the authority of the law. So now that he has made the statement and illustrated it, then he brings it right to the Door of the believer in verse 4. And here is the key verse of the entire chapter right here. Here's the big truth right here. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Let me talk to you about that verse for a minute. It is so critical to Romans chapter 7. Paul says... The reality of the person who has put their faith in Jesus Christ, there has been a death. And what that death means is it forever and comprehensively changes the believer's relationship to the law. They are no longer under the jurisdiction, under the authority of the law anymore. At that death, It ended immediately and perpetually and entirely. You see, the connection he makes, which is the same connection he's been making all the way down through chapter 6. If you've been here, this sounds very familiar. He showed all the way down through chapter 6 that the believer is united at salvation, at justification. When they put their faith in Christ, they are united to Christ. The 
the doctrine that's being covered here in chapters 5, 12, all the way down through chapter 6 and chapter 7 and chapter 8. All of the doctrine is related to the believer's union with Christ. And the truth of that union is this. At salvation, the believer is united to Christ, meaning he dies with Christ. And meaning he is buried or she is buried with Christ. And meaning... He or she is raised with Christ to new life. Not will be, not may be, is at the moment of salvation. The death has happened. That's what Paul is saying right here. The death has happened. The death that ends the power and jurisdiction and authority of the law happens at the moment of salvation, at the moment of justification, when the believer by the Spirit of God is united to Christ, there's a death. And because of that death, there is an ending of the law and its power and its authority. You see, the first section here is related to the believer and his relationship to the law. But look closer at verse 7-4. Not only is there a death, but what that death does is it severs a relationship. Now think about the illustration of the woman. It severs the relationship so that that woman can now do what? Come on, somebody's got it. You can be remarried, right? She's no longer bound to the former marriage. The death has happened. That law has ended. No hold on her. Now she can be united to a new husband. And the point Paul is making here in flowing through with the illustration is that we were bound in slavery to sin and to the law. But at that death, that ended, now we can be united into a new relationship with Jesus Christ. The church is called the Bride of Christ. We enter into a brand new relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ at salvation. So there's an ending of a relationship, our relationship to the law, so that there can be the institution, the beginning of a brand new relationship, a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And why with the Lord Jesus Christ? Look at the last part of the verse. It is so that by belonging to him who was raised from the dead in power, we may bear fruit for God. That as we are united to Christ and taken out from under the bondage to the law, we enter into this new relationship and now what happens is the very power of the resurrected life of Jesus Christ enables us now to live a life of fruitfulness to God. So let me show you the connection again, the overall idea of this chapter. I've told you it's this. It is to show you that you cannot be sanctified by obedience to the law. You cannot be sanctified by obedience to the law. Look at verse 5 of Romans 7. What kind of fruit do you produce? You see, 
Sanctification, producing fruits, talking about the same thing. Sanctification is growth in your spiritual life. It's becoming more like Jesus Christ. Fruit, the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are the characteristics of Jesus Christ. Sanctification and fruits, the same thing. What kind of fruit did you have when you were connected to the law? Romans 7, 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. What kind of fruit did you produce? Fruit for death. Prior to salvation, fruit for death. Following salvation, fruit for God. Absolutely polar different. In other words, big idea, you cannot be sanctified, you cannot produce fruit by the works of the law. The only way fruit can be produced in your life is as you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection life works in you to produce fruit. You cannot... After you are united to Christ, by your own effort, produce it. It's got to be the life of Christ that you have been given through the power of the Spirit to help you produce that. You are absolutely dependent on the power of Christ and the Spirit for you to be saved. And once you're saved, you're absolutely dependent on the power of Christ and the power of the Spirit to live as a saved person. The same is true on both sides. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He is coming against the mindset of legalism. In Romans chapter 7, he is saying, don't think you can do this on your own. You can't do it. All of your works are as filthy rags to God. You can't do it. You got to have the power of the Spirit of God working in you to get it done. That's the only way it's going to happen. So the first section of Romans... Chapter 7, verse 1 to 6 is the believer's relationship to the law. It ended. It ended. Just like your relationship to sin ended, as talked about in Romans chapter 6, the moment you were saved, you died to sin, and no longer are you connected to it ever again like you once were. Now, as you're connected to Christ, your relationship to the law ended. You are no longer under its authority and jurisdiction. It's condemnation. Second chapter, second section of Romans chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. This section talks about the law's relationship to sin. So the first section talked about the believer's relationship to the law. Now this section talks about the law's relationship to sin. So here's what Paul does. In these six verses, Paul vindicates the law. You see, here's the development. He said some radical statements. He said that the law brings an increase to the trespass to sin. He said, you're no longer under the law. I mean, it could just look like Paul is discounting 
and saying derogatory statements about the law. And clearly the Jew who had held it in such a preeminent place would say, wait a minute, Paul, wait a minute. The things that you're saying, you're going to take the law and just totally throw it in the trash. That's what it sounds to me like you're saying. And so what he does here in this section is he shows what the function of the law is. He shows what the purpose of the law actually is. You remember what the problem of the legalist is? Number one, they don't understand the purpose of the law. And number two, they don't understand their depth of sin. And so what he does in the middle section of Romans is that he teaches what the purpose, what the function of the law is. Does he say it's worthless? Oh, by no means. He just says, if you're trying to use it to be sanctified or to be saved, it's worthless because it was never intended to do that. Here's what he does show. Verse 7, he shows us how the law reveals sin. Right? The law of God does that. When you hear the law of God, he uses example in places of Scripture when you heard that the law said, do not covet, there was a light that was shed into your heart. I'm a coveter. The law reveals. It's like a spotlight that sheds a light into your life to show you your guilt and sin. Verse 7. Verse 8 and 9 Paul shows us how the law actually not only reveals sin, but it does something more. It arouses it. It arouses it. Here's what I mean by that. You hear what the law says, and even if you haven't coveted before, you start coveting. I mean, isn't that... How many of you have kids in here found out early on Just tell them not to do something and you're going to find out what a sinful nature is from a little child. I mean, that's just the way it works. That was your law. And when your law went out and they found out about it, their sinful heart said, man, I got to do that. I've never wanted to do that in my life, but I can't stand it now. I want to do that. The law arouses sin. It's what it does. You know, some drew the conclusion from that. Well, Paul, what you're saying is that the law is sin. Aha. He's going to end this section in verse 12 with a clear answer to that. I'll show you in a minute. But then in verses 10 and 11, Paul teaches us that the law not only reveals sin and arouses sin, what the law actually does is that it causes death. It causes death. It comes in and it causes sin to be aroused so that it's acted out and that sin brings further and further death, separation from God defined in Scripture. The law brings death. And then verses 12 and 13, fourth purpose of the law, function of the law, Paul says in those two verses is that the law reveals to us the true evil, black nature of sin. You see, this little section right here in Romans 
is the most profound section in Scripture to teach us what sin is like and how it works. Does that mean that because the law is the occasion for that happening, that there's a problem with the law? And Paul says, absolutely not. There is no problem with the law. For verse 12 says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. There's nothing wrong with the law. Where's the problem? The problem is us. The problem is us. It's not a problem with the law. It's a problem with the human condition, the human heart. So section 1, verses 1 to 6, the believer's relationship to the law. Section 2, verses 7 to 12, the believer's, uh, the law's relationship to sin. The law is not sin. It's holy and righteous and good. What it does is it reveals sin and arouses sin and causes death and shows the true evil, black-hearted nature of sin. And then section number 3. Section number 3, verses 14 down to the end, 13 down to the end of the chapter. And now we come to the controversy. Here is the great section that is the most debated, argued passage probably in all of Scripture. What I'm hoping, I'm not telling you what to believe. I'm asking you to consider the, the contextual development that we have just looked at. The preceding context as it slides into and up to Romans chapter 7 verses 13 and following to this controversy. Consider how that influences the interpretation of the text now of controversy. Paul has been writing to show the believer, verses 1 to 6, that their relationship to the law has ended. Paul has been writing 7 to 12 to show that what the law does is it brings sin to light. And then Paul says, and now let me illustrate it with my own life. Let me put myself under the spotlight. And illustrate the truth that I have just been explaining in the first 13 verses. And so he begins to show the picture of this struggle. This struggle of wanting to do the right, but being absolutely powerless to do the right. What is the purpose of the chapter? To show us that we cannot be sanctified by the law. Paul was trying to be sanctified by the law and then he met the Lord of grace on the road to Damascus. And he found out that his works were filthy rags. 
And he understands as he develops Romans chapter 7 that his statement all the way back in Romans 5.20 and in Romans 6.14 could be misunderstood that there's something wrong with the law and why would the law increase sin and why can't the law sanctify or save? And so he writes Romans chapter 7 to do this, to show that you can't be sanctified by the law. That was never the intent of the law. The law was meant to show you how desperately you need the grace of God. So that you would do what? So that you would throw out all of your filthy works and you would come to Jesus Christ for salvation. But not only that, that you would come to Him for sanctification and the power of the Spirit and say, I can't do this on my own. I'm dependent on you every moment of the day. That you would come to a place of total surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ and be seeking the leading and the power of His Spirit in the moment by moment. And that you would never trust again in your works for salvation and you would never trust in your works again for salvation. You would never think, I'm going to make God happy by doing this right thing. You can't appease God. He is so infinitely holy beyond your concept and you are so sinful beyond your understanding. What you need from start to finish and all the way through is the grace of God. That's what you need. So Romans chapter... 7, 1 to 6, the believer's relationship to the law. Romans 7, 7 to 12, the law's relationship to sin. And Romans 7, 13 to 24, the law's relationship to sanctification. It can't do it. Verse 14, the law cannot transform us. Verse 15 to 21, the law cannot empower us. Verse 21 to 25, the law cannot liberate us. That's the outline of the chapter. Now I want to close by making two points of application to the believer. You see, You remember what Paul said, you also have died to the law. If you're a believer, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. But even if that has happened to you, listen to me. Oh, please, please listen to me. You still are in danger of legalism. Heed the warning of Romans 7. And understand that legalism wears at least two masks. Let me tell you what they are. They are radically different on the outside, but their root is 100% identical. Here's one of the masks of legalism. You can call it whatever you like. I'm calling it piety. This is the individual that 
prides himself in his good works. This is the believer that kind of polishes his spiritual knuckles. Says, look at how obedient I am. That's what he does looking in the mirror. But do you know what that person does related to other people? They're judgmental. They're pious and proud of themselves and judgmental of other people. That's one of the masks of legalism. Here's the second. So radically different, but exactly the same root. And it looks something like this. Has this ever been your story? You commit your life to Jesus Christ. You're doing great. You're serving the Lord. You're growing in the Lord. You're excited about what God has done and what He's going to do. And you're trucking along and all of a sudden you fall into a temptation and fall flat on your face. I mean, you fall hard. You come to a dead stop and you're laying there in the gutter of your own sin and your own evil by your own choice. And here comes the voice of legalism. You know what? I don't think you were ever saved. You know, if you really would have believed unto salvation, you would not have done that. Do you see that that is the very same root issue as the pious, judgmental Christian? It's simply turning the judgment on self. And it has this as its root. I can be holy and appease God by what I do. And Paul is writing Romans 7 to say, you cannot do that. The law was never meant for you to appease God with it. It was meant to show you how brutal you are and how desperate you need His grace. That's what it was intended to do. So that's what Paul does in this second half of this two-chapter parenthetical statement. In chapter 6, the first half, he talked about lawlessness and how grace does not lead to lawlessness. And in the second half of the parenthetical statement in chapter 7, he talked about legalism and how a proper understanding of the law does not lead to legalism. And that as he ends chapter 7 and jumps into chapter 8, he's going to pick up right where he left off at the end of chapter 5 and keep right on rolling with his treatment of justification by faith in Christ alone. So where are you at? As you have heard the unleashing of the truth of God's word, has there been something in your heart? Has the Spirit of God been saying to you, 
Here's the mask that you're wearing. Maybe in a great degree, maybe only occasionally or minimally. The point is, if it's been revealed to you, God wants you to confess it and get it out of your life. It doesn't mean he doesn't want you to obey the law. He wants you to do it through the power of the Spirit, through total surrender and dependence upon the Spirit of God, not on your own effort, because your own effort will avail you nothing. Let me, would you stand? Let me pray for you. Wow, I, church, I tell you, I'm, this is not a statement about what just happened in the last 45 minutes at all. I am amazed at the word of God. It is so powerful. It's not a statement about my preaching of it. I'm just talking about inherent in itself. The more that I dig into that, it is it is so obvious that the divine hand is all over the authoring of that. No man could put that together. Let me pray for you, Father. Just leave it up to you. It's always been up to you anyway. Just like sanctification can never be accomplished by obedience to the law, there's nothing I can do up here in my own strength and power that can do anything of eternal benefit to anyone in this room. It is only as your spirit, your Holy Spirit activates your holy and powerful word and applies it to the hearts that there can be radical transformation. But that being done, there can be radical transformation. I'm asking that you do that, Lord. I'm asking that you do that for Cornerstone Church as a body. I'm just praying a a corporate prayer request over this body. I'm including myself and everyone uh, that calls this their church home. I'm asking you that you would pour out your spirit upon this body. I'm asking you to do that however you choose to do that for the purpose of living a powerful testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose. That's the fruit. That's a God-glorifying life. Help us to understand in our own hearts what it is and where it is that we are seeking to add our own good works into the mix in an attempt to appease you. And help us to surrender fully to you and have such a longing and a yearning for the indwelling, empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. 
helping us to live the Christ-resurrected life that we become a light on the hill. Not as we just cloister and huddle in here. I mean, as we go out, that's where the fields of harvest are. That's where the darkness is. Help us to go out as lights, emboldened and emblazoned with your spirit to testify in power to the Lord Jesus Christ. Pour out your spirit upon us toward that end. Even as you said in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. God, do that in us and through us to our world. We need you. We cannot do it without you. Here we are surrendered and dependent. Casting our works aside. And then Lord for those here. That have never accepted you as their savior. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Here's the truth of your son. He left heaven. As God married his divine nature with a human nature, willingly went to the cross, paid for sin in its fullness, satisfying the wrath of the holy God against sin, all sin, was buried and then three days later rose to new life through the power of the resurrection life and is now offering salvation. To anyone who would recognize their sin, come to you humbly in repentance and accept your free offer of grace. Draw them to you. Give them faith to believe. Establish them in your kingdom. And fill them with your spirit. For your glory. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.